beautiful voice of Jeff Tweedy there. It's Wilco and Jesus, etc. Great words in that song, Skyscraper Scrape. I don't know why I love that one. We're going to be talking words coming up with Pulitzer Prize winning author Jennifer Egan. Don't forget, we are bringing Wilco to the banks of the Mississippi River for the second annual Grand Rapids River Fest. And we are partnering with the city of Grand Rapids for this great event. You can go to grandrapidsriverfest.com. Tickets are on sale right now. It's 814 and you're listening to the Thursday Morning Show. It's member supported KAXE, KBXE. I'm Heidi Holton. There is a new novel out from the Pulitzer Prize winning author Jennifer Egan. It is called The Candy House and Jennifer Egan joins us now. Good morning. Thanks for being here. Thank you. So I do, I want to talk about a lot of words and whether it's words that describe your writing or the words within this book. But first I want to talk about um, an article I've read where you talked about kind of the nugget um, that led to creating this machine that you've created in the candy house about our memories. I wonder if you could tell us about that. Sure. I mean, the man who invents this machine, which is called Own Your Unconscious, is a tech icon. And what What inspires him is actually his own wish for more knowledge about an event that occurred when he was in graduate school. He was standing next to the East River with two friends. The two friends went away. It was after a long night of partying, and one of them ended up drowning. And it's one of those events that still haunts him years later. But what he realizes when he stands in the place where that last conversation happened is how little he really remembers of the specifics. There's nothing for him to sort of go over in detail from his adult perspective. So he invents a machine that lets people externalize their consciousnesses if they want, just for their own chance to review every perception they've had from their present day perspective so that they can complete their memories, understand them better, and all of that. And then, of course, there's another option, which is sharing. (laughs) And in a way, there's the rub. Um, If people want access to other people's consciousnesses, which of course becomes possible if they're externalized, they have to share all or part of their own. So that's the machine and and the motive for inventing it. Wow. So was there a time in your life you wanted to, because I, I sometimes get that way too. Like I want to I think back to some place I lived in college and I think, well, where did I do my laundry? Like I want to remember like some of the weird details of things. Did you have that feeling too? I did. I had a childhood friend who I had not been in touch with in 40 years and I suddenly felt very curious about her. Now I knew her full name. And of course, we have social media to track people down. So I typed her name into Facebook. And to my amazement, I immediately started seeing RIP messages. And it turned out that she had passed away in a car crash two days earlier. And even though I had not spoken to this woman in 40 years, and clearly our friendship had, you know, ended long, long, long ago, we were little girls, I was besieged with curiosity about her and a sense of loss that I couldn't satisfy that curiosity. We would never be able to talk over the things we did as kids. And then that led to this strong wish to be able to review my memories of that time. And I think some of that was behind my um, my writing about Bix, this tech entrepreneur who has the same wish by the river. Now, Bix showed up in a visit from the Goon Squad, is that right? 
Yes, he has a very minor role there where he basically predicts that at that point, it's the early 90s. He's the guy who's online before everyone else. He's a graduate student. They don't even know what, what it, the Internet is. And he basically tells them during the same conversation that he's trying to remember later that a day will come when everyone we'll, we've lost will find or they'll find us. And he's basically predicting social media, and he then, in my mind anyway, goes on to invent it. And, um, but we see him after that in the Candy House when his invention has become globally, you know, the, the standard. He is a first-name guy. Everyone knows who he is. He's very famous. But he is having kind of a midlife crisis because he has no idea what to do, what his next thing will be. So he goes in Chapter 1, he disguises himself as a graduate student and goes to an academic discussion group at Columbia University in hopes of somehow being inspired or pushed toward a new way of thinking because he's so successful and famous that everyone just tells him what he wants to hear. So he goes out into the world to try to be a graduate student again and have a new idea, and he, he actually succeeds at that. We're talking with Pulitzer Prize-winning author Jennifer Egan. Her new book is out. It's called The Candy House. Now, I said I want to talk about some words. Let's talk about authenticity and how it relates to The Candy House. Well, I think authenticity is something that we as a culture are pretty obsessed with. Um, My son was just telling me about a new app that just instructs you at certain times to just take a picture of where you are so that there's no mediation. You're just being very raw and real about what you're doing. I can't remember what it's called. Um, And I think that the fact that so much of our experience is mediated and happens on a screen leads to this wish for authenticity. So this is something my characters are often seeking. And there's a character named Alfred who goes to great lengths to achieve authentic experience. And he, as a younger kid, he's so obsessed with the, with the fakeness of people, as he sees it, that he starts wearing a paper bag over his head at family <laughs> holidays just to provoke you know, genuine reactions, which, of course, are largely reactions of confusion and, and negativity. He then takes this further as an adult and comes up with what he thinks of as a project which is that he begins to just scream spontaneously in public so that he can watch the reactions of the people around him, which are very authentic and spontaneous, but again, often <laughs> negative. So it's, you know, there's a lot of humor in here. I'm, I'm not really interested in judging technology or its effects, because in a way I feel like that's a very familiar conversation. I'm much more interesting in, interested in exploring its interactions with human life and pushing some of those to their kind of comic extremes. Yeah, you know, I it's funny as I was reading about Alfred and him screaming in these public places and seeing how people reacted to it. I thought, man, I think we've all had that feeling. If you're squished in somewhere, like what would happen if I screamed right now? What would people do? <laughs> exactly. And another thing about authenticity, back to the original um, setup with Bix in disguise in this academic discussion group, he doesn't want people to know who he is because he's so famous. He knows it will be very distracting and he, he'll become the subject and he just wants to listen. But later that night, he runs into on the subway a young woman who is in the group and they start chatting And she, at one point, basically accuses him of not, she feels a sense of dishonesty about him. 
And she says, can you swear to me that you are who you say you are? And he feels terrible and decides, okay, I'm just going to come clean. He says, no, I'm Bix Bouton. And she doesn't believe him. (laughs) So at that point, she stares at him closely and says, no, you don't even really look like him. So again, you know, there's this wish for honesty and truth and authenticity, but such difficulty in finding it, even when we tell the truth sometimes. Yeah, I know. You know, there's parts of this, like if you say what the book is about, I think you do lose that these are really well-rounded, funny characters that you can relate to, that it's not about, you know, the future and fearing social media. But it, man, it certainly does make you think about how used to we are, you know, apps like you described that your son is is using to um, tell you to do something um, but it's a it's a lot more than that but there's parts of it where I was kind of creeped out a little bit because I'm like oh my gosh we are willing to give information about ourselves all the time now well yeah I mean I think that one reason that some of this feels familiar is that it's not really all that different from what the internet already is I mean there's so much out there about all of us and I don't even just mean in the form of data I just mean in the form of other people's recollections photos um, you know little things that have come and gone that if you sit sit if you sit down for an hour and really try to learn about someone using social media you can find out a lot and so I've just pushed it one step further and again, you know, just as we turn to the Internet to have our wish for knowledge quenched, you know, people in the candy house can do the same thing. And this especially crosses generations. So there's a chapter where uh, an adult woman go- look, views her father's memory from a time when she was six. So she's in the memory as a six-year-old. On a day that he goes, this is in California, 1965, and he is a kind of straight-laced businessman, and he goes on a strange adventure to a marijuana farm in Eureka, California. And he is so struck and shocked by what he sees and, and aware of a huge cultural change coming that he returns home in some ways not the same man, and his, his marriage to his wife, whom he really loves, ends up ending. His children go on to have many troubles, and this is a character we know from Goon Squad. But the, the crux of it is that this woman is able to experience that day from her father's point of view. And this is something we can never do with our parents. We can't even see them as other people see them, because I think that parent-child relationship is so specific. So one thing this machine allows people to do is just have experiences they would never be able to have. And that's also what we turn to the Internet for. Yeah, absolutely. And everyone has had that feeling of, you know, if you've lost a loved one, like, why didn't I ask them these questions when they were here? Why didn't I know about their experience, you know, as a kid? You know, because your grandparent or your parent, you only think of them as those roles. You don't think of them as little kids growing up. Exactly. And the moment that that knowledge is lost, that's the sense of how much there was to be lost, I think immediately becomes so profound. And, and here's another thing that a character does with this device. He, you're, if, if you've seen someone once in your life and you don't have any identifying information to find them on social media, you can think very hard about them, thereby releasing those specific memories of them into this online collective. 
And then through facial recognition, you can view anonymous memories of other people that contain that same person. So there's a character named Miles who has is recovered from a very serious drug problem. And but his life is sort of on hold. He's never really been able to sort of get back into the swing of things, although he's no longer using drugs. And he wants to find out what happened to his drug dealer, a guy named Damon, whom he was kind of fascinated by. So he releases his memories of Damon into the collective, and he's able to view a kind of sketchy story of Damon's life through other memories. And what he learns is that Damon is now in prison, which is, in a way, no surprise. (laughs) But for Miles, it's tremendously disappointing because he somehow hoped that Damon would have achieved something great. And on learning that Damon has not, Miles himself leaves his apartment and sort of heads out on a huge adventure. He goes to the desert in California to visit his cousin, and a lot of very dramatic things result from that. (laughs) Hot air balloons, all kinds of things. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Again, absurd and crazy, but also somehow plausible. Exactly. It's Jennifer Egan. We're talking about her new book. It's called The Candy House. So within this story, who are the eluders? The eluders are, I guess, the equivalent in this more extreme world of what people who go off the grid are now. They are people who not only do not want to externalize their own memories and, God forbid, share them, but they are so appalled by the degree to which they themselves are represented in the collective through the memories or consciousnesses of all these other people who are sharing that they take an extreme step, which is that they cast off their identities altogether. One person likens this to uh, an animal chewing off its leg to escape a trap. They leave their identities behind to the Internet. They start over as new people. But, of course, they can't just disappear or everyone will know that. So they hire what are known as proxies to fill in for them online and basically impersonate them so that no one knows immediately that they're gone. And it, is, it, it becomes known that actually quite famous people have even done this. So we think that we are reading tweets and, and you know, posts from and video, seeing videos of famous people, but it's actually not really them. They're just constructed, and those pe- people have decided to start a new life as other people. Those are the eluders. You're right. So these are all things that are going on, but the way that you're writing about it here, you're making us understand that this is kind of crazy, this world we've been living in. <laughs> Well, I've, like any, my writing process is very improvisational at the beginning. My first drafts are pretty blind. And I think like a lot of improvisation that we are more familiar with, it tends toward the comic. Because what you're looking for is a line of action that feels alive, if you've ever watched um, improv, and then sort of pushing into that. And if you push something to its extreme, it often becomes funny but usually also other things, too. You know, it can be funny and frightening or funny and horrible, but, but extremes often do have a comic element, and that is something I love to explore in my fiction. Hmm. You know, I did want to ask you, so as I read about you, a lot of people use the word kaleidoscope to describe your writing. And I get I get what they mean by that. And I'm sort of curious, you have lots of different characters. I think there's 14 characters that we we know about in um, the candy house, but we we know them well. It's not it's not just little things, but they're all part of a bigger, uh, a bigger collective. And to me, 
your style kind of plays into what you're writing about. We're all kind of have this different attention span than we used to. Well, this is the kind of book that is very much an ensemble story. And I think kaleidoscopic, in a way, is a really good word, because if you look at, through a kaleidoscope, you look at lots of little pieces, and then there comes a moment when it shakes, and they form a pattern. That is hopefully somewhat the experience the reader has. Um, we, never, we never don't know who we're dealing with, but they, uh, what I was interested in was moving in and out of people's perspectives. And, of course, every person's perspective is completely different from every other person's. And it can be really fun to see someone one way and then suddenly be inside their brain and realize that the world looks very different. And it's the combination of those different perspectives, which I would almost call different worlds. I think of each of us as a world of perception and history and mental habits and fears and, and shame and all of that, if you combine all of that, you end up with a larger story that contains smaller parts that work together in a way that I think really is kaleidoscopic, if it, if it works. Now, Jennifer, before we go, uh, what does the title mean, The Candy House? Well, The Candy House, of course, I think most people would associate with the, the fairy tale of Hansel and Gretel, in which Hansel and Gretel are very excited to see a house made out of candy. They run toward it, and what awaits them is a witch who hopes to eat them, um, as opposed to them eating the candy house. They end up thwarting her. But the candy house is, as it, my idea in the book is that it's a phrase that exists in the culture, and the phrase is never trust a candy house. And the first time it's used is by um, two daughters of a record company executive who are all freaking out because Napster has come along and suddenly the music industry is in free fall. And they have a brief idea of, of mounting a billboard campaign <laughs> to persuade Americans not to use Napster. This is in 1999 um, by having billboards all over America that say never trust a candy house. <laughs> because the idea is if you use Napster, what you're not thinking about is that people that is that Napster itself is inside your computer and using your information too. And of course they don't do this because a, a campaign like that would not work. But the idea really is that you know, we, we, as humans, we seek to fulfill our impulses, whether it's for to satisfy our curiosity, to get information about, I was thinking about my friend who died or Bix thinking about his friend who drowned, but we rarely look at the consequences and rarely even know what they are of that desire for knowledge and satisfaction of curiosity until much later. And you might even say too late, because often we're so dependent on whatever it is by then that it becomes very hard to negotiate an exit. <laughs> that is Pulitzer Prize winning author Jennifer Egan telling us about her latest book, The Candy House. Thank you, Jennifer, for your time today. I appreciate it. It was a pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to the Thursday Morning Show. Coming up, we'll have national native news.